I sat in my office on Friday afternoon trying to write a message or finish a message on uh, Nehemiah chapter 12. Uh, as I was doing so, I was deeply distracted in my preparation because I had just gotten an update on my brother delivered over the phone by my mom. And she told me that um, that COVID had damaged his lungs severely um, and that it would be a very long road back if he got back. That they were back in the hospital. Um, they were talking ventilator and his respiration rate was very high. And um, we were not sure what was gonna happen. In fact, we were pretty worried that we would lose him. And, and then I was looking at Nehemiah chapter 12, which is a chapter all about thanksgiving and praise and worship and joy and celebration. And I was going, Lord, how am I going to talk to people about these things in light of all that's going on, in light of my fears that my dear sister-in-law and her three little kids would join my little sister in being a 40-year-old widow. We're going to do that. But as I've studied Nehemiah these past few months, it became clear to me that his days of leading the exiles were a lot harder than they sometimes might appear to us. Reading them at uh, a remove of 2,500 years later, they were far more uncertain, far more fearful, uh, far harder than they might seem to us. But Nehemiah chapter 12 shows us that God people worshipped him anyway with great joy and with tremendous thankfulness. So it occurs to me today that if we're going to worship God at all, if we're going to worship God at all, then we, while we most certainly should praise God when we feel like it, and when everything is going well, and when all of our circumstances are good, but we should also and even especially praise God and give him thanks, even in the midst of times of doubt, and fear, and hardship. And so with all that in mind, I want to lead us into the climax of this book, Nehemiah chapter 12. And I want to read for us God's word in this great chapter. So if you are able and you uh, would stand as I read God's word. Nehemiah chapter 12. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, Meramoth, uh, Ido, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Midjamin, Maadiah, Bilgah, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amok, Hilkiah, Jediah. These were the chiefs of the priests and of their brothers in the days of Jeshua. And the Levites, Jeshua, Benwi, Kadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Madaniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the, th the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakbakiah, 
And Uni and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Joachim, Joachim the father of Eliashib, Eliashib the father of Joiada, Joiada the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan the father of Jadua. And then the days of Joachim were priests, heads of fathers' houses, of Sariah, Moriah, of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshullam, of Amariah, Jehohanan, of Malachi, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Harim, Adna, of Marioth, Helkai, of Iddo, Zechariah, of Genethon, Meshullam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Miniamin, of Moadiah, Hiltai, of Bilgah, Shamua, of Shemiah, Jehonathan, of Joyarib, Matani, of Jediah, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Amok, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nathaniel. In the days of Eliashib, Joiada, Johanan, and Jadua, the Levites were recorded as heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles until the, J the days of Jehohanan, uh, the son of Eliashib. And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Kedmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to give praise and to give thanks, according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbakiah, Obadiah, Meshullam, Talman, and Akib were gatekeepers, standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Josadak, in the days of Nehemiah the governor, and of Ezra the priest and scribe. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the village of the Netophites, from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, where the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And then they, bought, they brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshia and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Madaniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them, and at the fountain gate, they went straight up before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. And the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshana, by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, I and half the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maasiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Eloenai, 
Zechariah and Hananiah with trumpets, and Maaseiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and tithes to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, according to the fields of the towns for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon, for long ago in the days of David and Asaph. There were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God in all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, as so often we come to your word and we don't even always understand everything that it's here to teach us. Father, we pray you'd open our ears to hear your word, open our eyes to see in it that which is the truth, open our hearts, Father, to receive it, our hands to do it, and our feet to carry it. For those who do not yet know your name and have never heard of your glory or seen your face. Father, we pray that our service this morning might be acceptable as an offering in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, if you look at the first 26 verses of uh, this chapter, you'll see another one of those long lists of hard-to-pronounce names. I get tongue-tied up here sometimes trying to pronounce uh, all of these extra vowels, I think, that are there. And uh, we've encountered a lot of these in this book, and this is the last one of those lists. Some of you are saying, for which we bless the Lord, <laughs> that this is the last one. Um, but... Uh, this is the last one in this book, but I hope that as we've studied the, this book and as we have seen these, these lists come up over and over, that you understand two major things about them. Number one, that every single word and every passage in the Scripture is the Word of God. Amen? And so that's why we don't just skip over these things and go, and here's a long list of names, and not read them. Because this is God's Word. And secondly, that nothing in God's Word is there uh, without meaning, without purpose, without a reason that it appears. We may not know immediately what that reason is, but we need that just tells us that we need to look more closely and understand why it's there and what its purpose is. And this one has something important to teach us, as every one of these has something important to teach us. And what it is doing here is, uh, is teaching us something about what it means to have a godly legacy that you are passing on. 
Because what this is, this list of names of 26 verses worth of names, it is, it is in some ways a genealogy of three generations of priests and Levites uh, who led the nation in worship. The first generation are those who came back with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the descendant of David who led exiles out of Babylon back into Jerusalem in about the year 539 uh, B.C. So 70 years had gone by from the time that anyone from Israel had occupied Jerusalem and it had been a functioning city. At that time, when it was sacked by the Babylonians, uh, the walls of the city were destroyed, the houses were laid waste, everything of value was stripped and carried off, and all of the people were carted off into exile in Babylon. Seventy years later, Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, leads back a group of about 42,000 people back into Jerusalem and to the surrounding area. And within about 20 years, they get the temple rebuilt, but the walls of the city remain a ruin uh, all the way up until the year 445 B.C., some 140 years after their destruction, when uh, Nehemiah goes back with another group and they rebuild the walls of the city and they begin to repopulate. And this list, these 26 verses of, of names that maybe we don't recognize or understand, what they are is three generations of guys from the days that they first came back to the land all the way up through Nehemiah's day of men who faithfully carried God's word and led his people in worship. For all that, all that span of 80 years, from the days when the exiles returned all the way up to Nehemiah's day, these are the guys. And, and if you understand Israelite worship at all, you understand that, they, that the men of the, who served in the temple were always present in the temple. And so it mentions, as an example, that they served in the temple watch by watch. You had a shift. And so 24 hours a day, the lamps in the temple were always maintained because they symbolized that the presence of God was always with his people. Morning and evening, they made sacrifices. Every Sabbath, there were additional sacrifices. Every new moon, there were additional sacrifices. Every uh, trans, uh, transition in the seasons, there were special sacrifices and festivals to lead the nation in that all celebrated the grace of God and his covenant with his people. And so for three generations, this is the record of the people who did that, who maintained that godly legacy, that flame of worshiping God. Day after day, month after month, come rain, come shine. These men are the heroes of Israel. Some of the greatest men of their respective generations because they returned not only to rebuild, but to restore worship to God's people. 
on the hard days when Jerusalem itself was a ruin. When it wasn't easy. When everything around them was still an archaeological dig, they rebuilt the temple and they said, we will have worship of our God. This long list presents a great and godly legacy of men who were faithful day in and day out. And their inclusion is meant for two reasons. It is here for two, for two purposes. One, it is a reminder. This is the line of people whom, from whom you all descend. These are the people who led your nation. These are the greats. And they are passing on to you and your generation great treasure of this godly heritage. And it's also there as a challenge. It lays down a marker. And it says, essentially, to, to the present generation of Nehemiah's day, will you be the people who continue in the faith like these men did for as many days as God gives you between now and glory? Will you be the people who continue that? And I want, to, I want us to take note of a couple of things that... Uh, enabled them to do this for all these days, all these years. Uh, you see in verse 8, where it says that they led the people in songs of thanksgiving. It, it, the text presents it like there's two groups of guys, and they're singing, singing songs of thanksgiving from opposite sides of the temple, back and forth to one another. Again, you see in... In uh, verse 24, brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch, so that there was always continually songs of praise and thanksgiving being sung. In fact, if you read this whole passage, one of the things that you'll see is there are 10 different mentions in 46 verses, one basically every four and a half verses, a mention of rejoicing, thanksgiving, celebrating, gladness, worship, praise, celebration of who God is and what He has done. And what's really beautiful here is that they continue to do this daily from generation to generation. Because men and women, passing on a godly legacy from generation to generation requires not only daily faithfulness to God, uh, daily devotion to Him, and worshiping God in every part of your life, and through hard work and hard circumstances like these men had. But it's also not merely a matter of just disciplined obedience. Amen? Sometimes we can... Sometimes we can degenerate in our spiritual life into kind of a mode of existence where we're getting up every morning and we're doing our Bible reading and we're doing our prayer and we're just doing it out of sheer disciplined obedience, gritting our teeth until glory comes. That is not the mode that we're to be in. If you're there, will that work for a while? Yeah. It will. It's better than the alternative. But it's 
it's not very fun. Amen? And it's not God's best for you. God's best for you is that despite your circumstances, despite the hard work, despite the effort involved and the challenges ahead of you, that you are praising and thanking God for His overwhelming gifts. In other words, it's shifting our thoughts from why hasn't God done X or Y or Z yet to one of deep appreciation and joy over what God has done and seeing how He has blessed us to this point. And when that happens, then we overflow with thanksgiving and joy even when our life is tough. Even when our circumstances aren't ideal. Even when the cotton is short. Amen? And the catfish are not jumping. And mama ain't so good looking anymore. Right? I mean, when all of those things go upside down. When all of those things go upside down. But we realize and we recognize how good God has been. then we give thanksgiving and praise to God. And the task before us might be difficult, but we have a legacy to pass on of faithful men and women who lead God's people in renewal. And that's what we see, honestly, in uh, the remaining 20 verses is of people uh, who have who have passed on this godly legacy and are doing so by rededicating themselves to joyfully thankful worship. You know, I as I look at as you look at these verses, I think it's helpful to understand why this became such a great celebration. And it's because uh, the people recognize how good God had been to them. Think back with me about all that Nehemiah and the people had seen God do in their lives. All the things that he had enabled them to accomplish. They have seen God turn the same king who put out an edict forbidding the building of the wall and punishing anyone who started to turn the heart of that man to not only funding the construction of the wall and approving it, but sending his prime minister, Nehemiah, to go oversee it and do it. How about that? They have, by God's aid, overcome sometimes even violent opposition from all of their enemies that surrounded them, north, south, east, and west. They had enemies, and they all opposed the, what they were doing, and God enabled them to stand against their enemies. They rebuilt the wall in 52 days. They had a weeks-long revival of celebration of God's grace and confession of their sin and repentance from their sin and a great turning away from them and a rededication of themselves to live by God's covenant. They've begun repopulating and rebuilding Jerusalem within the walls and they have been restored. They recognized all of the villages and towns of their ancient inheritance. And so now they come to this the celebration of the dedication of the walls. And what they're doing is celebrating all the good things that God has done for them. All the ways He's protected and provided all the way through to this point. So here's what Nehemiah does. He divides the, 
the the people who have assembled, they have gone out to get all of the Levites from the, who, are, who live uh, in villages across the nation so that no one would be too far away to hear the word of God. And they gather all of them and all of the people who will come into Jerusalem and they, they put the Levites and the singers and the, the, uh, the priests uh, and they divide them into two groups, one set of leaders and Levites and priests in one group, and one set in another group, and they stand on top of the walls. Because what better way to show how securely these have been built than that our leaders are going to walk around them. And they do. And they walk, uh, one group goes to the south, one group goes to the north, and they come all the way around the entire mile and a half to two and a half mile uh, structure that they have built, and they meet back at the temple. And as they're walking, they are singing, and there's music. The Bible says there's harps and lyres. I don't know what a lyre is. I think it's like a guitar in the ancient world. And so there's cymbals that are crashing. There's trumpets that are blowing. They're singing. It's a loud, noisy, musical affair. It's amazing. I would love to have seen it. Can you imagine? what this is like. And they come back to the temple and they're offering tremendous sacrifices and they're singing and they're worshiping and they're praising God together. They have their best clothes on. They've purified their bodies and their clothing and they're standing before God and they're celebrating all that He has done for them. They're playing the musical instruments that David himself made for the worship at the temple. Think about that. They are celebrating how good God has been to them. And they are just overwhelmed with joy at the way that God has carried them, as the scripture says, on eagles' wings all the way through these trials and, and all through all this hard work and difficulty and all these challenges. And so they simply must praise the Lord for what he has done. It's so overwhelming to them, in fact, that verse 43 includes this beautiful sentence. You see it there at the end of verse 43. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. In other words, even people who didn't show up could hear it. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have summer camp this year. But you, you know how that is, right? Like... In my house, which is like two miles from the park, you can feel the walls vibrate <laughs> with the sounds of summer camp at one o'clock in the morning, right? Uh, the sound is heard a long way away. I didn't have amps back then, but nonetheless, you could hear it from a ways, right? Celebration. Gratitude to God flowed out of their and I hope you can see also what's going on in verses 44 through 47. What, what's going on there is this, that the leaders and the priests and the Levites and the singers, they all get organized and plan for how they're going to continue leading the people in worship. And what is involved is going back to an ancient tradition that David and Solomon had passed down to them 650 years previously when worship in Jerusalem was and the temple itself even were first established. 
And what's beautiful here is not just that they are reviving what they used to do when the nation was young, but also the fact that they are rebuilding everything that had been lost in the meantime. After David and Solomon, David and Solomon are the, are the golden age of Israel and the pinnacle of their worship of God. But after them, there's just a real ebb and flow, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, and depending on who the king is, sometimes it's just completely forgotten to the point that the, the word of God is even lost and has to be dug out of a cubbyhole somewhere in the temple. Hey, we were cleaning the temple and we found this. We don't know what it is. Oh, that's the word of God. That literally happened. But this is not just something for religious leaders. It's something that's supported by all of the people too. Do you see that? All Israel. In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah. Gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So the entire nation. Guess what? Worship got into their pocketbook. And into their time. Where they devoted time and money, resources, to the worship of God. The whole nation. Such that all of the Levites and gatekeepers and musicians all received the provision that God had decreed for them. It showed up in people's lives. Isn't that good? I like this chapter. I really do. Now, as I said, every chapter of God's word applies to us. Every section, every word, every passage, every book applies to us. Romans 14, 1 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Right? It's not one or the other. It's got to be both. But every passage in Scripture is for us. And so as we consider how this chapter applies to us, I think there's one major point we need to carry home with us. And that is that we need to do this. We need to continue the godly legacy that we have inherited by rededicating ourselves, me, myself, and you, yourself, to joyfully thankful worship. As far as a godly legacy uh, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. We here at Chillicothe Bible Church have a really good one. We have a really good godly legacy. By the grace of God, next year we will celebrate, if the Lord tarries, our 60th anniversary here as a church. 60 years. Three generations, just like Nehemiah's day. Three generations have gone by since a, a group of then young businessmen and their wives decided they wanted to study God's word together and they wanted to know God and they wanted to build a community of faith and faithfulness, a worshiping people. And guess what? God has been faithful to that vision. 
and he has carried us now through our third generation of worshiping community together. Some of those guys, few of them are still around, believe it or not. But we have a choice, men and women, whether we're going to continue the legacy we have received. Are we going to be the kind of people that they were and are People who are daily faithful with as many days as we get from God between now and glory. Or will we wander away? As so many generations of Israelites did. As so many people who at one point in their life professed faith in Jesus. Will we wander away? Will we be swallowed up by the culture? Will we be assimilated into it as so many people in Israel were? See, our culture, I'm not really a Star Trek fan, but they have this great villain in Star Trek called the Borg, right? And the Borg's mantra essentially is this, you will be assimilated. Right? And we're going to make you one of us. Right? And here's the deal. Our culture operates by the same mantra. That you will be assimilated. And the devil rules this world. And his desire is for Christians' light to go out. For their saltiness to go away. And for them to be assimilated into the culture. But we have the opportunity. We have the opportunity to stand against that pressure. And to shine the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ into a new generation and pass on the legacy we have received. We have the opportunity to make disciples who carry the gospel forward. We have the opportunity to be salty salt in a tasteless world. We have the opportunity not to be assimilated, but the way that's going to happen is if we do the second part of this, rededicating ourselves the joyful and thankful worship. The kind that isn't based on our circumstances, isn't based on having an uncomplicated and pain-free life. It isn't based on being rich in, uh, in money uh, or being successful in our jobs or in not confronting disease or death. If that's the kind of life you're hoping for in order to worship God, I have to tell you you're going to be disappointed. That is not the kind of life that is on offer in a fallen world full of fallen people, one of which is you. Okay? So if we're going to worship God at all, it's going to have to be in the midst of very challenging, very difficult, very painful, very hard circumstances. But the way that we do it is by just being overwhelmed by gratitude for what God has done. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to celebrate one of the most shocking developments of my life, my 25th wedding anniversary. That, that this woman, this woman, 
has put up with me for 25 years is like literally startling to me every single day, right? Because if you know her, you know that she is this grand and glorious lady. And I, well, I'm the son of a construction worker, okay? And, and, um, and so the most surprising thing in my life is that she would want to spend her life with me, right? You know what's really even more surprising? She feels the same way about me. And I found out that that is the secret to a happy marriage. Is that for both of you to feel like you're the one who got lucky and the other one got the muddy end of the stick. Right? And so believe it or not, and I know this is surprising, most of all to me, she tells me regularly, you know, I'm so blessed being married to you. You're such a good husband. Yeah. Okay. And I tell her, oh, sweetheart, I'm so blessed to be your husband. You're such a good wife. And we've been going on like that for 25 years. And you know what? The same thing is true in your relationship with God. When your relationship with God is one where you just cannot believe and you have never gotten over the fact that God in his amazing grace, would pick you, of all people, to be part of his family, then it can all hit the fan. And you can go, you can go, you know what, God? I have a great life. I'm far more blessed than I deserve. Praise the Lord. Right? Because I am. If there were, if if God were solely concerned about about justice in my case, I would already be in hell. Amen. I would already be there. I wouldn't have drawn this many breaths up to now. But God, in His grace, lavished on me His salvation. He gave me His Word. He gave me His Holy Spirit. He gave me membership in the body of Christ. He blessed me with spiritual gifts to serve His people and to glorify Him. He gave me a family. He gave me a wife. He gave me friends who care about me and pray for me and walk with me through the challenges of life. He gave me amazing salvation. And I've never gotten over it. I'm always amazed that God would do this kind of thing for me. Of all people. And men and women, if we're going to praise God, that has to be the basis of our celebration. Just being shocked at the marvelous grace of Jesus that He reaches us God has been so good and we are so blessed so far beyond what we deserve and the greatest blessings are still to come Amen So let's continue this godly legacy that we have received that we've inherited from godly men and women who went before us and rededicate ourselves to joyful and thankful worship. Amen. In fact, let's begin today and let's make some noise, men and women.
It would be awesome to me if people like down the street from us could hear us in here. We should like open up the doors and just let people hear the sound of praise from God's people. Because it is a wonderful thing to worship the living God, to experience his love, and to be a recipient of such mercy as we have received. Amen? So let's pray. And then let's praise God. Father, we do give you praise. We are thankful for all you have done, all you continue to do for us. Father, we, we can't even count all the blessings that we have. If we had a thousand years to do it, if the sky was made of parchment and every drop of ink in the ocean, every drop of water in the ocean was ink, we would run out of both before we ran out of reason to praise you. And Father, we uh, we just ask that you would help us. Because Father, if it's up to us and our flesh, we will fail. If it's up to us to pass on a legacy of godliness to the next generation, we will most assuredly not succeed. Father, by your Holy Spirit, you can help us. You can help us to be transformed. You can help us to worship. You can help us to raise up a new generation of people who love you and carry forward the gospel to those who need it. And so, Father, we pray for your aid and for your mighty Holy Spirit to help us even as we worship you and give you praise. Father, help us to loudly praise you from our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.